want to invite you to stand as we begin together in song. So as we do, um, each Sunday morning we'll begin singing a song um, for all God's children, young and old. We'll be singing this over the next couple weeks together. All creatures big and small Come worship, hear the call All children, young and old Come hear the gospel told All creatures big and small Come worship, hear the call All children, young and old Come hear the gospel told Our God is good Our God is glorious Our God is great Our God is gracious to us Our God is kind our God is love, 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 His kingdom come. And every daughter and every son, our God is good. Our God is glorious. Our God is great. Our God is gracious to us. Our God is kind. God is love, 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 His kingdom come. And in every daughter and every son. All right. Well, good morning, everybody. You can grab a seat. Well, it's good to see everybody. Glad you could be here. For those that um, don't know, my name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors of Christ City Church, and we are excited to gather together in this space um, this morning uh, to do what we do on a regular basis as a faith family. Um, what we do is we come together into this time, we kind of step out of our normal rhythms of, of work and of family and of play, uh, and we come into this space to set our minds' attentions and hearts' affections upon Jesus. And, and we love doing that. We think that's actually a really important part of what it means to be a person of faith, what it means to be a follower of Jesus, is that we need space to be able to worship, to be able to um, enter into and recognize with other people God's presence with us. But we don't think that God's presence with us stays here. We actually think that as we leave here, what we do when we set our minds, attentions, and hearts, affections upon Jesus is we help set us up to follow Jesus back into where God already is, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, and to be ones who in that space are more attentive to him, more responsive to him, more um, willing to follow him, but also more able to enjoy him, um, more dependent upon him, and um, um, ones who... Uh, we believe are actually more um, fully human um, because of him. And so that's what our desire is today, not to, to do something spectacular, but to in this ordinary practice of coming together in this space, set our minds, attentions, and hearts, affections upon Jesus so that we can follow him together back into our roles and relationships throughout the week. And, and we, we love doing that. We think that's an important part of it. We actually think that what happens outside this place is church, 
that this is just the church coming together. Um, we actually think that following Jesus together is what it means to be the church. And so if you're not a part of a gospel community, uh, we would want to invite you to church with us. Um, again, this is great. We love doing this, this place and time to worship. Um, but we think that sharing life with others, following Jesus, is what it means to be the church. And we call those groups, those people who are doing that together, gospel communities. And so at the back on those little table right there, there's a little black card. If you want to fill one of those out, put it in the box. Real simple, as you can tell, as we go through the day, you'll really recognize this, but we're pretty laid back. We're pretty, um, um, pretty simple. You'll get an email from me, and it will have my contact information, an invitation to coffee to get to know myself and to get to know our church family, um, and also information on gospel communities, on some groups that are meeting together, trying to be one another, uh, be um, people who encourage one another to follow Jesus. And so we'd love to invite you into that. We'd love for you to be a part of that with us and get to know us in that way. Um, so I hope you'll take advantage of that. Also, as a reminder for those who are a part of our faith family, um, we have a couple of ways in which we stay connected as gospel communities, as a collective of gospel communities throughout the week. Um, the primary two ways are through a, a weekly email from me uh, that has information on things that are going on within and across the entire faith family, things like... Um, Adoration on Monday in Vickery Meadows, a time of worship and prayer on Monday nights in Vickery Meadows. Um, our corporate fast that we do every second Wednesday of the month. Um, a global prayer that we'll be doing um, with um, about 600 other church families around the world uh, later in September. Uh, and other things that we have going on within our faith family as a whole. Um, you can find in that email each week, it'll kind of remind you of those things. Um, and also through our church app. Again, as, as, lay, as laid back as we are, as simple and pared down as we are, uh, we know that we can't in today's world function without an app. Most of us uh, don't know what to do without apps. And so even as a faith family, we've embraced that. Uh, and you can find information and encouragements from people within our faith family like the Monday Psalms uh, in the app. In fact, the Monday Psalms pick back up, I think, is it this week or the next week? I think it's the next week. The next week in September. And we will finish... All 150 psalms, where all 150 psalms will have been prayed over for our faith family and from people within our faith family shared with our faith family, which is pretty cool. Let me think about like over the years we've we've done this. I don't write them. Chaz doesn't write them, or at least most of them. Most of them are written by men and women who share your life with us, um, who enter in the psalms and to pray for those things for us. And so, um, in just a few weeks, we'll finish those out, um, the whole 150, which is pretty incredible. And so, so we're really excited about that. But you can access that on the app as well. And so I want you to take advantage um, of those ways that we try to stay connected um, even across the faith family while we're trying to share life in gospel community. All right, enough of the announcements, enough of all that kind of talk. Um, um, what we have in store for us today, besides the setting our minds, attentions, and hearts, affections upon Jesus through opening our scriptures, through singing songs, through communion, uh, is we're finishing out a time of looking at the meals that Jesus has with people and then sharing a meal together. So if you're new with us, you see these tables. We, these aren't set up every week, um, but we have for the last month been looking at the meal, the stories of Jesus eating with people. And so after the gathering, we're going to enjoy a, a meal together, a catered lunch, a box lunch um, that we will eat both inside and outside for those comfortable wanting to eat outside. We will, we will do it in both spaces. Um, but we would invite you to join with us and to and enjoy a meal with us. And so just so you know, that's what we've got coming up. And so let's do this. Before, um, um, before Stephanie comes up and reads for us a, uh, a poem from the prophet Isaiah um, to begin our time, let's pray and set our minds, attentions, and hearts, affections upon Jesus to calm ourselves, take a deep breath, and recognize God's presence with us. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you are here. 
Help us to recognize your presence with us. Lord, in the men and women who are sitting next to us, who in a moment will sing with us, um, Lord, recognizing your presence in your written word, in, um, Lord, in the act of doing what Jesus asked us to do, both in receiving his body broken and his blood poured out for us, and also in sitting at a table with others. Lord, whatever we enter into this space with in the week past, excitements, joy, difficulties, opportunities, confusion, ambiguity, apathy even, Father, in this moment, may your presence overwhelm, draw in and let us feel the fullness of you with us and your welcome to us. Lord, in whatever we have in the week ahead, Father, Lord, may this day and this time, Lord, be grounding for us, allowing us to see that, um, that what we've gone through has been with you, our good shepherd, and what we walk into will be no different. Father, we long to um, be ones who live our life in... Um, Lord, both in the awareness and the power of ones who are yours. So help us today. Allow us today, free us today to be able to worship you. All this we pray um, with humility, with um, gratitude, with confidence, because Christ died, because Christ lives, because even now he intercedes for this very thing on our behalf. And so it's in his name we pray. Amen. Isaiah 25, 6 through 10. But here on this mountain, God of the angel armies will throw a feast for all the people of the world, a feast of the finest foods, a feast with vintage wines, a feast of seven courses, a feast lavished with gourmet desserts. And here on this mountain, God will banish the pale of doom hanging over all peoples, the shadow of doom darkening all nations. Yes, he will banish death forever, and God will wipe the tears from every face. He will remove every sign of disgrace from his people, wherever they are. Yes, God said so. Also, at that time, people will say, look at what's happening. This is our God. We waited for him, and he showed up and saved us. This God, the one we waited for, let's celebrate seeing the joys of his salvation. You're welcome to stand, and we'll sing together. Stephanie just read for us. We'll sing the glories and the triumphs of our God and our King. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, our great Redeemer's praise. The glories of our God and King. Triumphs of His grace. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. 
for a thousand tongues to sing Oh, for a thousand years to praise The glories of our God and King The triumphs of His grace Our great Redeemer's name Jesus, the name that charms our fears it bids our sorrows cease Tis music in the sinner's ears Tis life and health and peace Our gracious master and our God Assist us to proclaim Spread through all the earth abroad The honors of your name Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing Oh, for a thousand years to praise The glories of our God and King The triumphs of His grace our great Redeemer's name To God all glory, praise and love Be now and ever given Saints below and saints above The church in earth and heaven Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing Oh, for a thousand years to praise The glories of our God and King The triumphs of His grace our great Redeemer's name No for a thousand tongues to sing Oh, for a thousand years to praise The glories of our God and King The triumphs of His grace Our great Redeemer's name If you're helping with little ones, or if you are a little one, you're welcome to head on back. The rest of us, we're going to stay and hang out and continue together in song.
going to invite Holly to the front. She's going to lead us in a reading of Scripture. This is Luke 9, 10 through 17. On their return, the apostles told Jesus all that they had done. And Jesus took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him. And Jesus welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But Jesus said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about five thousand men. And Jesus said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about fifty each. And they did so, and had them sit all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, Jesus looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. Thank you, Holly. If you want, you can open your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. You know, we've spent the last month around the table, um, actually a variety of tables together, um, literally in our kind of post-gathering banquets, um, but also in the stories of Jesus going about doing what Jesus did bringing the kingdom of God into visibility. That's what Jesus was about doing. That's what Jesus was going about doing, right? And for those who who may be new with us, we've been looking at these because we want to be ones who do what Jesus did. Like we think what it means to follow Jesus is to not just to to know about him. Um, We we definitely want that. Not just to um, be with him. We definitely long for that, right? But to actually be ones who are apprentices, disciples, who do what Jesus does as well. And what we see Jesus doing in the scriptures, as one author noted, um, um, especially in Luke's gospel, where it seems like at every turn Jesus is either going to, at, or coming from a meal, is that Jesus eats and drinks with people. He shares meals with people as both the means and the manifestation of God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. In the stories we've looked at over the last month, every and any table in which Jesus sits becomes an embodiment of God's welcome. Think about that. Every table in which Jesus sits, any table in which Jesus sits, sometimes a picnic table or picnic um, on the hillside is uh, the story we just read, becomes an embodiment of God's kingdom, of God's welcome. Our Father's holistic hospitality extended to us most tangibly in the actions of Jesus, the Son of Man. Activities which we are empowered to mimic, having followed Jesus in his death and raised to new life, to be, as we looked at in Peter over the summer, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, a people welcomed into communion with the Father. Listen, the genius and power of of Jesus' kingdom embodiment is that it's both common and real. There is no stereotypical, there are no stereotypical religiosities around the mills of Jesus in our Gospels. Jesus rather ordinarily takes a seat at tables with a variety of people. 
We're the insiders and outsiders, the religiously clean and the culturally dirty, friends and acquaintances, the curious, and even as enemies. These meals are not sacred or even uh, grand or done in grand spaces or conducted with extravagance, but instead they all take place in homes or on hillsides, at happenstance places along the road, in everyday spaces with children's projects and family heirlooms scattered about. As much as we long for a transcendent vision of God with us, this kingdom of God, God chooses to give us a picture of him standing at the door, ready to come in and dine with us and us with him. That's the picture of the kingdom that Jesus gives us. Not only is the kingdom this common picture, this thing that we can all imagine, but we've all had happen. People coming over to our house, knocking on the door, us opening it, they coming in and joining us and experiencing the welcome and the togetherness of relationship. Not only is it this common thing, but the kingdom embodied is in an everyday acts of eating and drinking in the ordinary space of home and table is an embodiment that is real. That is, Jesus' meals are not metaphors. The meals that Jesus has, it's not, it's not like we're, Jesus is talking about meals. He does talk about meals sometimes. Every once in a while, he'll use in a parable an illustration of a meal. But Jesus actually eats with people. Jesus sits with them in person, in body, Amazingly, in the actual act of dining in the presence of one another and God with them, the kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we see in the scriptures. As much as we like to point to the rich symbolism of Jesus' activities, as much as the mills would have reminded us and the people of the stories of our faith lineage, the point of the mills was not theological, it was relational. The point of the mills was not theological, it was relational. It wasn't ideas about God. It was God himself with us. The kingdom of God, not in thought or idea or even spirit, but in bread and drink and conversation and cleaning up. How amazing is that? How awesome is that the way the Son of Man came to bring about what he was doing, God with us and God for us, is in the most common and real space that we can all share. That's the genius and power of Jesus' common meal, that we can all participate in it. Eating and drinking with others in the presence of God is an activity that we are empowered to mimic, having been sought and found, served and freed by the Son of Man in his death and and raised with him in new life, right? As as Christ followers, that's what we believe. As ones who know and love Jesus, that's the, the life that we have now, we get to live like Jesus. We can participate in embodying the kingdom at any table, requiring, and doing so requires seemingly very little of to offer from our way of resources or preparation. So that means this embodiment idea, this doing what Jesus did, means that none of us are left out and none of us are excused. We've all got to eat, right? None of us are left out, but none of us are excused. Now, if you're like me at all, admittedly, um, I often get kind of caught up in the tangles of the vision and responsibility that comes with that. The vision and responsibility of being holy priests that we looked at last week, that what Jesus is trying to help us do is be the priests that we're called to be, be these mediators of God's presence and welcome, having received it, sharing it with others around a table. I get a little overwhelmed by that at times. Um, I hear embodying the kingdom at any table as the necessity to do so at every table. Anybody else identify with that? Anybody else feel sometimes in the weight of hearing the way Jesus lives and the difference between the way Jesus lives and the way we live as being sometimes a little overwhelming? 
And so this is what usually happens because of that for me. Um, that sort of pressure, it rarely allows me to follow the flow of the Spirit at the table, <laughs> at any table, right? Rather, I try to force conversation, meaning or purpose or outcome into the meal, whatever it is that we're doing together, whether it be at my table, with my family, with, with neighbors, with friends, with you all. Like, there's this, there's this thing always going on in the back of my head of, okay, this has to be purposeful, meaningful, we're embodying the kingdom, we're bringing the kingdom about, and it's my role to kind of make this thing happen, right? We talked a little bit about that last week with Martha's story and Mary. But, but sometimes I'm not just distracted by wanting to make something happen. Sometimes I'm distracted by not wanting to make something happen. So aware am I of my tendency to push, I actually fight any inclination to, to do so and thus find myself avoiding any pulls into depth. I'm so keen and aware of not trying to press into an issue and press the, press the issue, but I miss the pull by the Spirit to actually do what it is that God says happens when we get together at a table in his presence. Anybody else identify with that? Where the, surface, the level of the conversation stays surface level, where you feel like you want to say something or draw something in or go deeper into the conversation, maybe do something like pray, maybe do something like bless, maybe do something along those lines, but there's, there's something that keeps you from going into it because you don't want to force the situation. It's not just a fear of being, being found silly. It's actually like you trying to not make something happen. Again, maybe you, your struggles are different, but that's the way I often hear and struggle with some of the visions of Jesus. But here's the thing that, um, that I've noticed as we've been going through um, these stories with Jesus. And maybe you picked up on it too. But apart from Jesus' final meal at the end of Luke's gospel um, and most of the gospels that he has with his disciples... Um, none of the meals of Jesus seem very planned. They're kind of spur of the moment. They're, they're unplanned in one way, uh, in the sense of that they weren't like, hey, six weeks ago on our calendar was put a meal to go meet with Jesus, right? But they are sort of planned in the sense of that they are natural. They happen in the normal flow of life with those who he's walking with, those who he's ministering to, those that he loves, and even those that opposition to him. It seems like these meals happen naturally, they happen naturally, meaning they happen because people have to eat, <laughs> right? I mean, it's, that's pretty cool to think about. Like, this just comes about in the flow of the way God designed our bodies and the necessity of our bodies to eat. In fact, the only planning we see is from those wanting to use the meals for their purpose. The only, the only plans that we really get are from those who are, want to get out of Jesus something. Sometimes positively, they want something from Jesus, but oftentimes it's kind of negative. They want to trick Jesus, trap Jesus, get to the bottom of why Jesus is so different than their vision of God and God with them. And what Jesus tends to do at those meals is he tends to kind of turn the table on his hosts, um, kind of thwarts their idea of what they're going to get out of it, redirects the attention of what the meal is actually is and what God is actually doing. And so he actually reveals to us in a good way, um, sometimes a hard way, um, especially those of us who are religious people, um, are kind of where we're off in envisioning of what God's doing and what we're doing. But most of the meals are with people because people needed to eat. And, and so our final story is no exception to this. The story that Holly read for us is no different. The meal we witness is not planned in any formal sense. It occurs naturally simply because the people had to eat. The day was wearing on and their stomachs were hungry. 
But as is the case with the other mills, it occurs within a bigger story. Something happening, something moving and working in which this mill is caught up. It, it's, it's a mill that's encompassed in this ordinary necessity of eating food, yes, and beverage, but it happens because Jesus, because the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost, to serve by offering his life as a ransom for many, and he does so by eating and drinking with others. This mill happens because Jesus is searching for those that are lost. This meal happens because Jesus has come to give his life to free us to be who we have been made to be in the image of God. These meals happen because it's necessary. Because it's necessary that Jesus comes and does what Jesus does. In this final story, I want us to notice a few things that will help us as we seek to do what Jesus did. As we seek to embody the kingdom at any table. Because as we, as we leave this series, as we kind of go back into um, the letters from Peter in 2 Peter, which will start in September, um, our tendency will be to be like, great, we talked about meals, we ate some meals, but, but now what? What do we do? How does, how does this become a practice of our faith family? How does this become a practice of our faith, of our, of our families, of, of what life looks like for us? And so my hope today is, as we kind of conclude our time before we eat together, is to give us a few observations from this meal that Jesus has that will empower us, equip us, encourage us to do what Jesus did. So let's reread the story together and see if we can draw out some of the empowering, grounding observations. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Luke 9. It won't be up on the screen much. Um, um, don't, don't throw that up there yet. Um, um, uh, we're going to go back through it, so, but you'll have to use your Bibles. So if you, if you don't have a Bible, there's some around you. Um, but I want us to kind of get into the to text a little bit this morning. All right, Luke chapter 9, verse 10 says this. On their return, the apostles told Jesus all they had done. So our story happens in the context of another story, right? As is the case in most of the Gospels, as we read the Gospels, even though in our most of our translations there's some bold print above this section that names this story and that story, most of the time these things happen in connection with the things before and the things after. The, the writers of our Gospel are telling a bigger story. They're doing it very purposefully. They put things in places very purposefully. And so there's usually some connection. It's never just this kind of random disconnect that sometimes the way our, our translations kind of split things up and the way our mind reads that. Um, and so, so this story takes place in the context of another story. And it's important to note what the disciples had done if we're going to understand um, and observe what's happening in this story. Chapter 9 begins, and now you can throw that up there, Amber, um, um, with Jesus giving his 12 apprentices power and authority over all the, of all demons to, and to cure diseases. Jesus has been walking with these, his apprentices, his disciples. He gives them now a task to do. Now they get to do what Jesus has done, right? They, they followed him. They've seen him do all these things. And instead of just observing their master, they get to do what their master did. And so Jesus empowers them to go, to, to have authority over demons, to cure diseases. And then he sends them out to proclaim the kingdom of God. And he does so in a way that, is, that makes them dependent on the hospitality of those that they share um, with and serve. He actually sends them out in verse 3 and 4 of uh, chapter 9. He says, And Jesus said to the disciples, Take nothing for your journey. And then he goes through a list of all the things that you would, would be the normal things for a journey, the basic things. Nothing extravagant, but everything that they would have thought to take with them, thought that they needed, would have been culturally acceptable and wise to have taken with them. Jesus says, Don't take any of those things with you. And whatever house you enter, just stay there. And from there, depart. 
Stay there, enjoy the hospitality, receive what it is that you need, and then keep going with the thing that God has given you to do. And essentially what we see in this first story is that the disciples are doing what we see Jesus do in verse 11 that Holly read for us. That, they, that Jesus proclaimed to the crowds the kingdom of God and he cured those in need of, who had need of healing. That's what he, he gave the disciples to do that, right? They get to do what Jesus did. And they were to do so with a little more than exercise faith in Jesus' word that they could do so. That's it. They were to do what Jesus did with a little more than exercise faith in Jesus' word that they could do what Jesus said they could do. And so our story is building on this experience of the disciples. The, the story of the feeding of the 5,000 isn't just for the miraculous nature of it. It's building upon the story of, of Jesus showing his disciples, helping equip his disciples to do what he did. And so we keep reading in verse 10. It says, Jesus took them or, uh, and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. Now Jesus takes his apprentices um, um, to a quiet place to process. That's what's happening. Jesus is taking his apprentices to reflect on their first solo job that their master had entrusted to them, right? I mean, this is, this is standard teaching, right? You give an apprentice something to do. You give um, your disciples something to do. They go do it. Then you come back and you talk about it. You process it. What went well? What didn't go well? What did you learn? What did you not learn? That's where they're going. They're getting out of the place where they've been ministering, going to a place to reflect, to recognize what God provided, what they experienced, all those kind of things like a good master would do training his 12. However, their plans had to change when the people who are exposed to this proclamation and demonstration of God with them and God for them when they discovered that these people who were doing and saying and bringing about the kingdom of God um, on earth as it is in heaven, that where they were going, they wanted more of it, which makes sense, right? That's kind of an affirmation of what they were doing. Probably a good thing, right? As is, 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 is troubling as we always read this story to be, that there's a frustration with the crowds just trying to get from them, it's happening because this is actually like what the disciples wanted to happen, Right? Like in the other Gospels that tell this story, they talk about how amazing it is that they, they were able to cast out demons and to heal people and all this kind of stuff. Like they're excited and pumped that they're getting to be a part of this amazing kingdom of God coming, right? And so ironically, as much as they want to get away and reflect on it, the thing that they desired in their ministry is actually preventing them from doing the next thing that they want to do. But that's for a different, different day. We don't need to hone down too much on that. <laughs> But rather than being frustrated or flustered at this, um, these unmet expectations, Jesus responds with hospitality. In verse 11, it says he welcomed the crowd. Again, we've talked about this, that this idea of welcome is not just a general sense of, hey, how's it going? You guys come on in and grab a seat. This welcome is a holistic version of hospitality. It, it encompasses all that it means to bring into your presence, to share life, to make a space where people can be nourished and fed and safe. So Jesus welcomes them into that. He doesn't just acknowledge the crowds. He welcomes the crowds. He draws them into his life to share his life for their good. And so Jesus was responsive, just as he encouraged his apprentices to be on their training run, right? He's responding to what's happening. As he's, again, he's continuing to train his disciples. Just as he encouraged them to respond, as they were going out and ministering, Jesus continues that response using hospitality, showing compassion, providing care, and essential provision for those he ran into along the road. Yet the encounter was not something the disciples had foreseen. 
Again, their intention was, they had done the real ministry stuff. They had cast out demons. They had healed people. They had proclaimed the kingdom of God. And now they were just kind of getting away. They were getting away to refresh, to re-engage, all those kind of things. And so they were ill-prepared to offer what the crowd needed. At least practically so, right? In some levels, I think they were willing to, to hear Jesus teach, to see Jesus heal, to continue to be a part of that. But when it came to the practicality of what the, of hospitality required, they, they weren't really ready for that. And so in verse 12, out of what I believe is shared compassion and not actually just frustration. Like, I really think they genuinely cared for the people and cared for their own tummies that were rumbling. They point out both their and the crowd's neediness. Both their and the crowd's neediness. They're a part of the crowd. They're in the same situation as the crowd is. And here's what verse 12 says. Now the day began to wear away. And the twelve came and said to Jesus, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. We are here in a desolate place. Listen, we, we, we can't provide for them, but we can't really provide for ourselves. <laughs> like, we've, we've all got to fill our bellies. We've, we've, we're all in need of something. So, so Jesus, send us, let's, let's finish this ministry thing and send us out to go get our need met. To, to go meet our need practically. And then we've got to remember something about the time of Jesus particularly. There are no restaurants um, uh, as we know them. Um, inns existed, um, places where you could find, a traveler could find lodging and food, um, but they were pretty sparse and they were often very small. And so traveling required uh, dependence on the hospitality of usually relatives, um, maybe distant relatives that you knew of, third, fourth, fifth cousins along the route of wherever you're going, or strangers if you were really desperate. You could go into a home, knock on a door, and, and, and find welcome. That's part of the reason why hospitality was so common in this context, um, such a common value in every culture in this context, and why it's still common in um, a lot of um, not American places around, around the world. Um, but the crowd, like the disciples, were not in familiar country. They hadn't planned to be where they were at. So they don't, they don't really necessarily know the relatives. They don't really know exactly where they are going or what they are up to. They, they kind of just wound up here. The group had come across the Sea of Galilee uh, in hopes of catching, again, the retreating band of kingdom proclaimers and demonstrators. What we know is it's a minimum of 10-mile journey, and it's one not easily made in moonlight. Right? So like the disciples in saying what they're saying, like are really being compassionate. Like they like there's a real need here and we can't meet the need. They need to go and get the need met before this becomes a dangerous situation. So the crowd of the disciples would need to start making their way back home to their homes or to relatives in the area if they knew that, or a little riskier, but but at least in the daytime might be safer um, going into homes of strangers if they could they could so that they could find provision. Disciples' request was not illogical or unfaithful, it was practical. The only way they could see to serve the people was to send them somewhere else. I wonder how often a lot of us kind of think that way in regards to our friends, our neighbors, our family members, and what they need. The, the best thing for them is to go somewhere else to find the provision that they need. And it's not necessarily an illogical or unfaithful thing, it's a practical thing. We don't think we have what they need. We don't think we have what our neighbors need, our coworkers need, our family members need, our friends need, our gospel community members need. And so, out of compassion, we pray that God would send them to someone who has what they need. 
In our day and in, in age, that may be a podcast or a video or a sermon or a church or a service, a ministry, a nonprofit or whatever it may be. But I think we often find ourselves, I know I do, like the disciples. Really excited that ministry is happening and taking place, believing that, that God wants to um, cure and heal and show his kingdom but not believing, not trusting that I have what is needed, but that what is needed, somebody else has. And the disciples believe the same thing. That is until they heard Jesus speak. That is until they heard Jesus speak. His word, once again, gives them the power and authority to embody the kingdom, just as it did in the first story, just as it did in his initial sending of the 12 in verse, chapter 9, verse 1. In verse 13, Jesus speaks again, empowers again, and he says this, but Jesus said to them, you give them something to eat. Jesus empowers them to meet the need that's in front of them. He expects them to meet the need in front of them. He expects that they can meet the need in front of them in the same way that he expected that they could go cast out demons, cure all the ailments, and proclaim the kingdom of God. As before, Jesus expects his apprentices will find they have all they need when he sends them. Jesus is not ignorant of their limited provisions. He knows that they're in a desolate place. He's not unaware of this. He's not aloof to the realities and the practicalities of their journeying and where they're going. He's the one that led them into this. Remember, he had sent them off under similar conditions only a few days earlier. He had told them not to take anything. They, don't, they still don't have anything to take with them. So he's not asking of them to give something they do not have, but rather to use what they do, what they already possess. Naturally, the disciples look around at what they have. They believe him, right? But, but like us, they kind of believe him a little hesitantly, a little questioningly, a little doubtingly. They look around and they recognize the poverty of what they have in comparison to the apparent need. I mean, the crowd, as verse 14 tells us, is made up of 5,000 men, not counting women and children. So that could be anywhere between 7,000 and 10,000 people. Imagine the chaos of, in your heart as you look out at that and all you have is such limited resources. And you hear Jesus say, feed them. And you look out and you say, really? <laughs> really? I mean, put yourself in their shoes. Like, don't, wouldn't you feel that? Wouldn't you feel overwhelmed by that? Empowered, yes. Overwhelmed, absolutely. Right? Listen, they, they feel the pressure. And so they say to Jesus, in the midst of the pressure, we have no more than five loaves and two fish. Unless we were to go and buy food for all these people. We, listen, we only have this unless you intend for us to go do something with the other resources that we have. Like, that's, that's what we've got. That's all we've got. It would appear that they're ill-equipped, unprepared, and found lacking in what Jesus is asking them to do, right? I mean, that's the way they feel ill-prepared, unequipped, and lacking in what Jesus asked for them. So will they press the issue? Will they, will they, will they press, in, press it and be like, try to come up with all the ideas of how to figure out how to provide for these people? I mean, you kind of hear a little bit of that in their answer. Does he, do you want us to go buy something? Do you, do you want us to go get something? Uh, knowing full well that they don't have the money for that kind of thing. Will they try and force a solution or will they wilt under the pressure of that responsibility? You can kind of hear that a little bit too. But, like, but we only have two loaves. We only have five loaves and two fish. We don't have what we need. 
Well, the good thing is they don't do either one of those things. Even though in their response you can hear that, and as humans we could probably identify with that, right? Like we could probably say like we would feel in a similar way as they would feel. Wanting to try to make a solution happen or wanting to wilt away from the weight of the thing in front of us. They don't do either one of those things. Instead, they simply offer Jesus what they have. Even if doing so, somewhat doubting and unsure, they still follow his lead. How, how cool is that, right? That, that what we have is they still follow his lead, even if they're a little unsure. And here's what, how verse 14 continues for us. After describing how large the crowd is, after the disciples having said, here's all we've got, Jesus said to his disciples, have them, that is the crowd, sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. Now we pass over this usually pretty quickly, but I don't want to. I want us for just a second to think about this. Jesus made um, what seemed like a chaotic scene, a haphazard scene, a t- the, this scene of, 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 of overwhelming necessity, even if it was natural necessity, just food, food in the belly. It's a natural, normal thing. But it seems overwhelming because there's 10,000 people who need this thing met for them. But Jesus takes what, what seems like chaos, and I think for the disciples' sake and for ours, he pulls it to a place of order and peace. The disciples, like Martha in last week's story, are a bit anxious and troubled with much serving that is before them. The same as we are, I think, often with our friends and family and neighbors in this context of being kingdom priests, of sharing a meal to embody God's kingdom. They're overwhelmed. And what Jesus does in this setting aside of the crowd, making the crowd, distilling it down into groups of 50, is he brings order into chaos. He allows the disciples to to move from this vision that's so overwhelming. I mean, think about looking out at a crowd of that large it's easy to not see a single person, but just to see a huge mob. And what Jesus does in gathering these, this group down into a smaller size, into about 50, he makes the crowd not only more manageable for the eyes, it's a less overwhelming picture to see groups, smaller groups together, even if they're spread out over a larger area, than it is to see this mass of people. But he also provides a feeling of something intimate and personal. He takes the crowd and makes it into a family, perhaps. A traveling party on the road to one of the temple feasts and festivals that all the disciples would have been familiar with. Having gone in groups, always in groups, from their hometowns to Jerusalem, three times a year, to worship God, to be in the presence of God. This is what Jesus is doing. He's making it familiar for the disciples. A traveling party, again, would have meant that they would, the disciples would no longer see this ambiguous crowd, this nameless crowd, but families of people. As always, Jesus draws it back from this massive thing that we're called to do into the intimacy of relationship. And so having practically provided a bit of peace for his fellow servants, Jesus then turns his attention to the guests. In verse 16, it says, And taking the five loaves and the two fish, Jesus looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. Notice that Jesus takes only what is there. He doesn't ask the disciples for more. 
The disciples offer and say, we have two fish, five loaves. And Jesus does not say, well, where's the rest of it? Where's more? Do you got anything more? Check your pockets again. Go look around. Was there anything else? You're sure you're not missing something? You're sure nobody else brought anything else? He doesn't do that. He takes simply what they have. He takes them at their word of what they have. He takes the only thing that could be offered to him. Could nothing more could be offered to him. And he gives thanks for it. He thanks God for all that is there and only what is there. I mean, that's kind of incredible, right? That Jesus assumes that all these people need something and that all that is needed is right there. So he gives thanks. The ESV describes it as Jesus saying a blessing over the meager provisions, right? But in actuality, Jesus offers a confession, a blessed confession, stating plainly that what was given was all that was needed from the Father. All that was needed from the Father was what was there, what the disciples had to offer. And then he made sure that it was more than was needed through his servants, through his apprentices, through his disciples. He made sure that what they had was more than enough. They offered all that they had, the only thing they had. Most notably, faith in Jesus' word, that they had all they needed for those at the table. That's really what they offered. I mean, they offered their fish and their loaves. But like that when they went out on their own to cast out demons and to cure and heal and proclaim the kingdom, these big, tangible things that we think of when we think of the spirit-filled kingdom of God, Right? They offered the same thing for the mill of the people at the table, the groups of 50, the families traveling on their way to meet God. It's important to note how the story ends in verse 17. It says this, And they all ate and were satisfied. In the end, there were leftovers. Right after that it says, And what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. 12 baskets um, would have probably, we, we tend to, I think some of the images growing up in Sunday school were like these giant, giant baskets of, of food. Most likely it was like a pouch, the, um, um, but it was a pouch that was used to carry for the next stop enough provision for the, for the journey ahead. Um, so like if you kind of think about the imagery, like what's left over is enough for the disciples to take with them to their next point of need. Like, which is, which is kind of a cool imagery that Jesus is, 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 is is leaving us with. But, but notice this, that not only are there leftovers, and we tend to think about the leftovers, the food of plenty and abundance, which is great, um, but he says that they all ate and were satisfied. Who ate to their full? Was it just the guest? Was it just the crowd? Who receives all that they need in the hospitality of Jesus, his teaching, his healing, his provision? Was it just the guest? Was it just the crowd? Or was it the disciples too? They all ate. All means all in this context, right? It isn't all of them ate. It's all ate, including Jesus. Jesus ate and was satisfied with the meal. The disciples ate and were satisfied with the meal and had all that they need. Jesus' apprentices discovered, and I pray that we will as well, um, Three things in their empowerment to minister through hospitality that I think are helpful for us. Uh, real quickly, I'll point these out for us. First, 
and ministering and eating together, we are entering into a context in which we are in need and given all that we need to share. We are needy and at the same time have all that we need. I mean, wasn't that true of the disciples in both stories? Doing what Jesus did is not about preparedness, but neediness, dependence rather than sufficiency. I mean, we sang it just before the gathering, right? How I need you, Lord, I need you. It's kind of encouraging that that's all that Jesus expects of us, that he expects us to be needy and discover that we have all that we need. Jesus, in the first story, Jesus ensures his disciples will go out um, without anything that they have and watch and experience the spirit of the Father go before them. In the second story, the situation ensures that the disciples have but little and have to watch Jesus reveal its expected abundance. Our participation in embodying the kingdom takes place in the context of the kingdom of God already in existence. Right? Jesus' meal is not a metaphor. Like, it is the kingdom happening. It's Isaiah 25 that, that Stephanie read for us. The mountainside, the hillside, the feast. Jesus brings it into existence. Our participation in embodying the kingdom takes place in the context of the kingdom already in existence. The Son of Man seeking and saving the lost, serving to free by giving his life, and welcoming women and men and children to the table of God. The Father and the Spirit and the Son expect only our loving faith and humble obedience. And that's all that God expects. Our humble faith and loving obedience. That we will recognize our neediness and that He has provided all that we need. But second, there's also this. The meals we see Jesus have in which the kingdom is embodied on display in the aromas and the flavors of daily life all take place because He is there. And those there are looking for him. It's kind of important to note that, right? The effectiveness, success, even righteousness of our loving neighbor is based on openness. Our openness to what Jesus asks and empowers, expects of us to do. The disciples had to be open to hearing the word of Jesus spoken and responding in faith and obedience to the word of Jesus spoken both as ones going out to cast out demons, to heal and to proclaim, and ones to provide for the needs of their neighbor. Right? They had to be open to that, attentive to God's presence. But at the same time, so did the guests and friends and family had to be open to the presence of God as well. I mean, the, the people don't just get around in groups of 50 because they're not open. They don't find themselves in the desolate place with the disciples because they're not open. They were looking for something, right? They came after Jesus. In the first story, though, Jesus assumes that there will be those who will open the door to his disciples, let them in, give them hospitality, be open to the proclamation and demonstration of the kingdom. But he also assumes that there will be those who don't. It says in verse 5 of chapter 9, that Jesus, when explaining to his disciples, um, he assumes that some doors will be closed. That whenever they don't receive you, meaning at some point you're going to experience the non-openness. And so cold calling uh, has its limitations, it seems, and we all know that, right? But frankly, so does our daily interactions. So do our most intimate relationships. Not every mill is open company. Not every mill are we open and attentive to God's presence. And not every male, at every male, are our friends, coworkers, family, are they open to the presence of God with us? 
Jesus doesn't encourage us to force it, though, right? How many of you um, are like me, and when, um, right, like, I don't know that this was necessarily taught this way. This is just how I processed it. Um, but when I, heard, when I hear again, um, go and proclaim the kingdom of God, tell everybody about um, the kingdom, make disciples, um, every conversation I have with every person tends to be filtered through that vein, and so I'm looking for the chance to turn the conversation, to move the conversation forward. Jesus assumes that that's not how it works. That there's something else happening that's opening people. And that rather than trying to make something open, we're to be responsive to openness. That's what both the stories show us, right? Uh, Being responsive to openness. As verse 5 continues, Jesus says, for those that don't open the door to you, shake off the dust of your feet. In other words, leave it where it is. Leave them where they're at. And where are they at? Because we just, we just talked about it. That's the first principle. They're in the context of God's patient and persistent working. They're in the context of the kingdom already present, the Son of Man coming to seek and to save the lost, to free humanity. Like, that's where they're in, even if they're not open to it yet. So you can just shake, your, shake the dust off and keep going. Continue. Not every mill has to be the mill, but it can be if there's an openness. In the second story, we see what happens when all parties, the hosts and the guests, are open to God with them. And that's what we're after, right? To be ones like the disciples who give them something to eat because, like Jesus, we are open to what the Father is doing and recognize an openness in those who are welcoming. Who are welcoming us to the table, who we welcome to the table. This means that preparedness for ministry and hospitality is not a richness of training or resources or planning, but instead a prayerful openness to God and others' openness to God. A prayerful openness to God, ourselves, and praying for the others' openness to God as well. To be looking for it and be responding to it. Jesus expected his apprentices to be open to God with them. After all, they had been given power and authority to minister in the name and the manner of God. Um, and he expected that they would be attentive to the openness of others to God and respond to that openness, just as Jesus does with the crowd. Not trying to force a way into a home, but to walk joyfully, obediently, faithfully, expectantly when the door is open. So we have this reality of this life that we're called to in following Jesus in which um, we're to be needy and to have all that we need. That's what God expects of us. But God expects for us to be responsive to an openness to Jesus, to be open to Jesus ourselves and to be responsive to that openness in others. And then last but not least, we discover in the stories of Jesus' meals that God is satisfied, is satisfied with what you have to give. That God is satisfied with what you have to give. Again, Jesus looking up to heaven and blessing what seemed like such impoverished provision is a confession that all God expected, all God needed was already present. Fish and faith. Jesus did not ask for more than the disciples had. He never does. He does not ask for more than the disciples have. I mean, we saw it in Revelation, if you remember, in Jesus' interaction with the churches. One of the favorite interactions um, in the church, and I believe it's Philadelphia, um, even though, again, we talked about why that's so hard for me, um, um, to have Philadelphia as the model church. Um, but um, 
What we see in Jesus' encouragement to the Church of Philadelphia is that they're living in their faith, their love for neighbor is growing, their trust in Jesus is growing, their walking in diligence is growing, and Jesus says, I don't ask any more of you. That's all I ask of you. That you continue to grow in this affection for the Lord, affection for others in the Lord. Whatever you have to give, that's what Jesus expects. He asks only what you have, and like the disciples in the crowd, is satisfied with the work of his hands in what he's given you. Think about it like this. If what God expects is what is already present, what he's already provided, then what we can expect is abundance. If, if what God expects and is satisfied with is what you have to offer, then what you can expect in your offering is abundance. Or better put, the seed will produce 30, 60, and 100-fold. Remember the story of Jesus? What if, aware that both my and my neighbor's life is taking place amid a bigger story, a story in which the Son of Man is seeking, saving, serving to free humanity? What if we believe that, that God is indeed already with us and for us? What would life look like? What if, aware, we were open to God and responsive to the openness of God and others? What if, faithfully aware, openly responsive, we had abundant expectations for what God is and will do? What would life together in Jesus look like then? I mean, that's what I hope, by God's grace, that we get to figure out as a faith family. <laughs> that over our, in our time together, in our meals together, through our life together in Jesus, that we will discover the kingdom of God with us. That we would experience at our tables what we could barely dream or imagine, that God is with us and God is for us now. Listen, if this feels a bit overwhelming um, and still seems a little bit distant, um, there's a, a prayer that the prophet Isaiah um, offers for us, a, a proclamation prayer in some ways um, that I think would be helpful for us as we end our kind of season of looking at this practice. Not doing this practice, this, will be, this has been and will continue to be a regular part of our life together. Sharing a meal, embodying the kingdom together. But let's end on this but letting the word of God, the prayer of God, the spoken word of God be the thing that grounds us into, invites us into this life that God expects for us. A life of neediness in which we discover we have all that we need. A life of openness in which we're responsive to the openness of others. A life in which all we offer is what we have and we experience the abundance of God through it. Isaiah says this, Come everyone who thirst, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come Buy and eat. He who has no money, come by and eat. Everyone that's thirsty and hungry for this life, everyone that longs for this, come and take it. No, buy it. Come and get it. Come get the wine, buy the wine, not with what you have to offer, but with what God has given you. The wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money, your time, your energy, your resources for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. This is what we've discovered Jesus offering at the table. My prayer, my hope for myself, for my family, for our family is that we would accept the invitation. Will you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for um, mercy and kindness that you've given us. Um, thank you that you have made a way for us to know you, to dine with you at your table. Help us, Father, 
um, to be ones who recognize our need and see the provision that you give, to recognize, Father, Lord, an openness of those around us and respond because we're open, to see, Father, Lord, and what you've given us, even if it seems impoverished to, um, to, the, to the need around us, Father, Lord, all that you long for us to have, and therefore you're satisfied with it. May in, from this place, may we with joy embody your kingdom at any table. In your son's name we pray, amen. As you feel that you're welcome to stand and sing. These pieces broken and scattered, and mercy gathered, mended and whole, empty handed, but not forsaken. I've been set free, I've been set free. Amazing grace, a sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Whoa, I once was lost, now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Oh, I can see you Raising up the broken to life. 
come to the table Plate and release The rich and the poor Come to the feast Come to the table Read this with me. Gracious and hospitable Father, strengthen us in the power of the Holy Spirit. As those who have a seat at your table, help us to love you with all our heart, soul, and mind, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Help us in the week ahead, as those who have been welcomed, to welcome the stranger, as those who have been fed, to feed the hungry as those who have been set free to sit with those in prison, as those who have been healed to touch the afflicted, and as those who have been found to join you in seeking and saving the lost. As those who have received, help us give generously, and as those who have heard, help us proclaim the gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. worshiping with us today joining us today we are going to continue worshiping together over a meal and so um in just a second um i'll dismiss everybody if you've got kids go back and grab them bring them back in here give us a, just a couple minutes what we're going to do is set up some free birds on the table at the back and free birds box lunches there's burritos there's salads there's bowls and there's also if you'll notice halves but the kids get the halves first and um, for and then um, those are they're they're all they all have everything good in them, but the the kid ones are just a little bit smaller. Um, and then if you want for uh, if we could get a couple of people to help us move, we'll move a couple of tables outside, and you can enjoy a meal together outside, or you can enjoy a meal together in here um, because it is a little bit warm. Whatever you feel most comfortable doing. Um, and in a few minutes after the meal gets started, we'll receive communion together. All right, around the table. Any questions, comments? Great. Love you guys. Enjoy. I look forward to eating with you in just a second. Thanks. Mm -hmm.